Well, here we are again, friends. The uh, show is Stand to Reason. Greg Kokel, your host. And uh, I actually have a guest in studio. And this feels like STR Ask, Amy. Uh, Amy Hall, of course, <laughs> as many of you know from STR Ask, hashtag STR Ask. And uh, she joined me. I asked her to come in for a little bit. We ought to have you on the show more often. But she, usually Amy's on the other side of the glass answering uh phone calls or looking up things that I don't remember. And so she's got to feed, feed it through my headset. So, uh, you know, I get names wrong and dates wrong and all kinds of stuff wrong. <laughs> but anyway, we were talking earlier, Amy, and I thought this was uh, worth having you come on board and share with uh, our listening audience here. We were talking earlier about um, a, a, an interaction that you had years ago that uh, th- that that had ramifications for something you read in an SDR Ask question um, more recently. So I just thought, I'll just give you the mic, and you go ahead and tell your story. We'll <laughs> okay. chat a little bit about it. But I think there's some interesting uh, applications to what you learned. Yeah. Uh, so I had been uh, in a conversation with somebody. It was about three years ago. He might even be listening right now. So um, yeah. hello. <laughs> recognize himself in a second. I'd had a conversation with somebody, and it was kind of a public conversation, and he was asking me questions. Because you were on an interview with another host, right? Okay, and this was a call-in. Yeah, basically that's what was happening. And so he was asking me questions, and I was responding, and, you know, that was about three years ago. And then I hadn't heard anything from him for a long time. What was he—when he was asking questions, as an outsider, as a challenger— Okay, so I think I think he was an atheist at that time, mm-hmm. and he was just kind of exploring Christianity a little bit, and he had talked with the host before about that, and so he was just calling to talk to me about this. Mm-hmm. And, and so I hadn't heard from him in three years. I, I think it's been about three years, and I, I wondered so often what had happened to him. And then I got a question for STR Ask from him, and realized he'd been listening to the show, or at least he had gone onto our website and asked uh-huh. a question. So I emailed him and said, are you the same person I talked to before? On this other show. And he wrote back and said yes, and hmm. and that now he did believe God existed, but he was still trying to work out, mm-hmm. make the, the, quote, leap to Jesus. So he's, he's not a Christian, but Incidentally, he... that happened with Lewis as well. He was converted to theism first, and then later on was converted to Christianity. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he's whittling it down and moving forward. So this is great. So he said something to me in the email that I thought is something really valuable that people who are doing apologetics need to know. Mm-hmm. And here's what he said. He said, thanks for being so patient during our discussion. I've noticed a lot of Christians have an understandable tendency to become defensive or assume trivial questions like mine are made in bad faith. I think the truth is that there are generations of people raised in a secular society and subconsciously searching for God, but have the religious literacy of a child. Hmm. We don't even know the right questions to ask (laughs) half the time. So the idea is, I think, as, as when we're doing apologetics and somebody asks a question, and this is his point, that, that sounds like maybe he's making fun of us because maybe it's such a, an elementary question. We should not assume 
that they know more than they do. There are a lot of people that don't know anything about Christianity. So we would all do well to be very patient with people and take their questions mm-hmm. seriously and not get angry or or dismissive in any way. Hmm. Well, I, I love this anecdote, partly because it it um, it's a great illustration of the concept of gardening that I've talked about so many times, part of the tactical game plan and the new book, uh, Street Smarts, that'll be coming out next year. I've got a whole chapter just on gardening to expand on that notion. And the notion is that th- th- it's the gardening that is the work. Uh, the harvest happens very naturally when the fruit is ripe. It just falls into the basket kind of thing. And that's the way the illustration is played out. And I think this is an example of somebody, in a certain sense, being gardened over time. And uh, a sincere heart, genuine questions, naive in many ways regarding the issues, as he admits, which may make his own questions seem odd or belligerent or whatever. But like he says, we don't even know the questions to ask. It's just so, it's so sweet to hear those words. And then to know that over these three years, he's been in process. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned in the last hour that I had just seen a few days ago the C.S. Lewis a bi- biographical piece with Max... What's McLean. His, Max McLean, who does a great job, I thought. Um, it, this is the most unlikely convert. Well, this line, um, the most miserable and unlikely convert in all of England, or something like that, that Lewis writes of himself in his own autobiography, he is referring to his change from being an atheist to being a theist, not becoming a Christian. That happens later. But these are just steps along the way. And it, you, th- th- this particular uh, individual who sent you the uh, email is a person along the way. No, I'm not presuming. He might even be listening. So I'm not presuming that he's where he's going to end up. But this is the kind of journey a lot of people are on. And we intersect their lives at different points and add a little bit to help them on that journey. And that's the gardening part. We pull a weed, we water a little bit, we put a little fertilizer in, we whatever, you know, and these are all part of the process. We don't know if the fruit is ultimately going to be born, but we are just doing part of that process. Now, here's the curious thing about Lewis, and I was glad to find this out. I did not know this. Lewis became a Christian, and I knew a little bit about this particular event. I thought it was on a walk, but he was actually taking a motorcycle ride with his brother Warney, and he was in a sidecar. And what the what he says is, and this is the important part, he says, when I left on that short journey, wherever they were going in their little junket, when I left, I was not a Christian. And when I arrived, I was. Mm-hmm. All right? No prayer to receive Christ, no altar call, uh, no, no decision card, sign of the dotted line. And I'm not against those things necessarily, but I try to emphasize that these are not required things. This isn't the way it often works. John Noyce doesn't know when he became a Christian. He, you know, former atheist, now stand to reason staff apologist. Um, he doesn't know when he became a Christian. He just know that he, then he wasn't, and then things began to change, and then he was. And um, this is the way it happens with a lot of people. And so don't despair is the point I, I think I want to leave with our listeners. Don't despair if you are in process with people. 
Don't despair if you have one conversation and they disappear maybe forever from your site. Mm -hmm. This person disappeared for three years and now you got more information. Person is moving along. And, uh, but we may never see, I talk about the witch in Wisconsin, you know, in the conversation I had 20 years ago with this gal. It's in the tactics book, but I've never seen her again. I don't know. God knows. It's his, it's, this is our task in the moment to engage, but it's God's problem, so to speak. It is God is the one who's got to see these things through in people's lives, and he's on top of it, even if we're not. And so if we can do a little bit of gardening or even more gardening, whatever, we do what we can, and then we trust God to move. And so I'm very glad, and I hope your emailer is listening, but I'm very glad that uh, of the, the progress on his journey, and I count it as progress. You're moving forward in a good way. You are, uh, you are, as Doug Guyvett would put it, uh, you are getting, you're, you're, you're. Oh, now I'm trying to think exactly how he put, plays it, but he, how he puts it, he says you're, you are, you are decreasing your your stock of false beliefs and increasing your stock of true beliefs. Right. Uh, so now he believes there is a God, and he ought to because there is. But there's more to it than that, and to quote. The, the New Testament, I think it's James, even the demons believe that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well, it's a true belief. I'm, I'm, that's not a put-down to the, to the writer here. It says, okay, but that's not the end. There's more to it than that. And uh, because the issue, ultimate issue, isn't, isn't the acknowledgement that God exists. It's the relationship that we have with God to bring Him glory that is grounded in an act of forgiveness that he provides through his son, Jesus. That's the gestalt. That's the full circle. That's coming all the way around and going to where uh, where we need to be. So uh, this is such a great—this is a great testimony, Amy, and uh, and I, I, I tip my hat um, to, to Mr. Mystery here. We, don't, <laughs> we have his name, but we're not going to say it just for his own privacy. Um, and I hope he continues. I remember there was a caller many years ago on the show. He'd call a lot. This when I was over at KBRT. And, uh, and he called himself the reluctant atheist. And, uh, and that's because he said, I'm an atheist, but I, I don't want to be. You know, I'd like to believe what you guys believe, but I, I can't bring myself to do that. That's kind of the way he characterized it. So we called him the reluctant atheist, and he'd call at various times, and we'd have conversations. And then he called in, and he said, I'm no longer an atheist anymore. Now I'm an agnostic. Or, and, and I said, that's progress. That's good. So now he's the reluctant, whatever his first name was, Fred the reluctant agnostic. Now, okay, good. We're making progress. And I don't know whatever became of him. But my point is that's progress. It, it's just such a good reminder every once in a while to see, to, to actually find out what's happened to somebody or where they are, that we should keep praying for people, keep praying for people that you've interacted with. I mean, from time to time, I'm sure you think of people you've talked to in the past. and Not as often as you do, probably, because <laughs> your memory is better than mine. But, uh, no, of course, they come up, and, and uh, there are occasions Well, usually I do my praying right after the engagement, mm-hmm. and then I'm on to other things. But but here, on your mind, this came up to you, right? It, and the other important thing to remember is these are real people, and especially if you're talking to somebody online, that is a real person. Mm-hmm. That's somebody that maybe you'll interact with for five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, whatever it is, but 
it is a real person and your goal is to serve them. Mm-hmm. To serve them with the dignity that they deserve, to answer the questions they have, to do your best to represent Christ mm-hmm. to them. And your goal is not to see if you can win the argument or you can get the best argument. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you want to you want to give the best argument you can. That's but, a means to an end, but this is the end right. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. and it, that's hard to—you know, I struggle with that, um, of trying to keep that perspective. You're much better at that, you know, and so you, you tutor me in that as I hear you <laughs> sharing these thoughts, and I'm sure many others as well. Um, fortunately, though, ultimately God is the one who's in charge, and even when we're engaging in a less-than-ideal manner— um, the Holy Spirit still takes the truth and uses it as the Holy Spirit purposes in that person's life. And that, that to me, is, the again, another application of the grace of God. I don't have to be a perfect witnesser, you know, mm-hmm. a perfect communicator. I don't have to always do it just right. I want to get better at it. And we encourage each other how to do it, and Standard Reason is here to help people do that more effectively. But even even so, we're, we're it's— all of this process is a messy affair. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a two steps forward, one step back. It's herky jerky because that's the way life is. There are lots of loose ends in these things. They 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 never are quite tidy. And I remember, you know, when my brother began sharing Christ with me, I'd say, well, I lived in in, in Michigan at the time. I was at Michigan State University, and when I would come home and he'd share, I I think that. There was probably a three-year period from the first time I heard the gospel from him to the time the fruit was ripe for me. Now I was living in Southern California. A whole lot of other things had happened in my life. All these things God used in a very particular way to bring that that testimony, the broad testimony delivered by different people, to fruition. And then when it happened, I was ready, and the fruit dropped into the basket, September 28, 1973, which— my spiritual birthday is coming up, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, since we'll take a break in a minute, but since I brought that up, I just um, want to add one note. And I don't know if I've said this on the air. I probably have. But two weeks after I became a Christian on that Friday night, um, I went into the very first church that I ever would go into as a Christian. That church was Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, which is they had a concert that night, and all these young people were there, and it was a Friday night, big concert, message afterwards, people come forward, okay? And I just, you, you, the rest of you listening couldn't see Amy grin and kind of chuckle inside Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, because in, in five weeks, we're going to be there with, I promise you, many more young people than were in that church in September or early October, 1973, when I first went in there. And that's, to me, the irony. God, in the sense of humor, uh, here I am, a goofy, you know, new convert during the Jesus movement, long-haired, you know, and and just fresh out of the spiritual womb, so to speak. And 49 years later, you know, here we're having these—well, and it started— but six or seven years ago at Calvary Chapel, we're having these events in the same venue with thousands of young people being built up in Christ. Who'd have thunk, right? It's amazing to me. And I don't take any credit for that at all. I, I just, I'm along for the ride. I got a tiger by the tail here. So that's pretty cool. These testimonies are good.
And we'll we'll have to have you on the show more often, Amos. All right, Greg. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Hey, let's go to an early break here, Kyle, and uh, then we got we got callers, so uh, we'll go to that. Greg Kokel here. Stay with us. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. You know, I never get tired of that riff right there. I'm not like a guitar guy or anything, but it it makes me want to do a little air guitar, right? Whatever that is, you know, that's pretty good. All right, let's go back to calls or two calls here for this show. And in Maryland, Rob, welcome to the show, Rob. Hi, thanks, Greg. How you doing? I'm doing good. I got it. First, this is... Uh... I have a question that's bothered me for a couple of years. This other thing bothered me for a couple of years. You came to Mount Airy, Maryland, and did a talk on Colombo. And I came up to you afterwards, so excited to see you. It's like a little kid seeing Spider-Man. This is one of my heroes. <laughs> and I, when you got, you did a, you, you threw in one thing different about your presentation. And I had memorized the DVDs and the MP3s, the CDs, and I had the book. And I said to you, I said I could do everything that you did, except you threw in something different. You looked at me like is my job. What are you talking about? What I was trying to communicate, and I didn't because that's how ADHD works, was that you are such a fantastic teacher, and the material is so wonderful that I was able to absorb it and it became part of me. And uh, I know that wasn't clear in that conversation. But well, no, that that's really sweet. I do remember going to Mount Airy, and in fact, I was only there once, I think, and I was there, there was a series of nights of speakers. Frank Turk was there the Correct. next night, and I I aced him out once because I told a Frank Turek joke during my talk, and then I told the audience, Frank's going to tell this tomorrow, and when he does, don't anybody laugh. Uh, 
And, <laughs> yeah, and I remember do that. Do you remember that? I and then Frank that. told the joke, and then everybody's dead silent, and he knew something was up. And then he said, did Kokel, you know, set me up here? Yep. That's funny, the way that worked out. But I do remember that event. I, I, I remember it was at Mount Airy's, a little bitty town, and doesn't have hardly any restaurants. After we were done, we couldn't even find a pizza place hardly to, to you know, get a Coke or something like that and have a couple of pieces of pizza just afterwards. But that was a great event, though, and I'm glad, uh, glad I was able to— to, to meet you there. Yeah. So what's on yeah, your mind? I got my yeah, I got my I got my uh, signature book. So that was like uh, worthwhile. I mean, I, I don't live in that area. It's like you know, like basically farm towns. If you want to see cows, that's where you go. No pizza. But anyway, <laughs> back to my question. All right. Um, I have heard it said something like the argument goes basically like um, we ask God to solve our problem, but then we would kill the ones He sent to solve them, and blah 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 blah. So the idea would be. Um, that if we ask God for a cure for cancer, and he's like, okay, I'm going to give you a cure for cancer, and that child wasn't born because we aborted it, is that, I mean, that's kind of like an argument from silence. And my overall question is, like, could man thwart God's will in that respect? Does that make any sense? It makes sense, but I think the answer is very uh, straightforward. Okay. One clarification has to be made, though, and that is when we use the language of God's will, there are two different distinct ways that God's will language is used in the New Testament. And if we don't make this distinction that there's an equivocation, we're going to run into a lot of problems. Uh, we're going to run into a, a straightforward contradiction in Scripture. So then people might say, are you seeing that there's more than one will of God? How does that make sense? And my answer is, yes, there's more one will of God, and it's not—it doesn't contradict—the notion is not contradictory because the there there are two different ways in which you understand the notion of the will of God, okay? Uh, and different people have used different language to describe this, but when, when God— when God says, um, where the Scripture says, here is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, that's First Thessalonians 4. Um, that's a verse that says, being sexually pure is the will of God. Now, here's your, your question then. Can you thwart that will of God? Absolutely not. Wait, <laughs> well, if you say absolutely not, that means that I'm, everybody I'm sorry, is I'm everybody's no, I'm, sexually I'm pure. No, no, no you're, I'm sorry. I was. <laughs> you got mixed up. My wife, my wife wanted me to kiss the dog at night, and I'm like, no, I'm sorry. That should have gotten into the microphone, into my speak. I'm sorry. You go ahead. Uh, no sorry. worries. No worries. Uh, look at I do. I do the exact same thing. I do the so. No worries. So if God says it's my will that you be sexually pure, can somebody thwart? that will, and be sexually impure. Well, of course, oh, that of is course the kind of will that can be thwarted. God gives commands, and we disobey. It is God's will one way, and we disobey it. But then there are other things where it says, where Scripture talks about the will of God. And this is, and, and here the Scripture says, who can oppose his will? Well, obviously, they must be, and, and it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. And there are a lot of other verses like that. So there is a will of God that cannot be opposed, but there is another will of God that can be disobeyed. They must be talking about two different things, 
or you have a contradiction. Okay. Right. And of so course, basically, this, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, will I be correct in saying that that question trades on the efficacious and permissive will of God and uses them almost um, equivocally? So you're you're meaning something one way, and then the way they would prove the argument is. Well, what, what you just said, there's an, there's an equivocation here. Your question okay. is, can man thwart God? And that means to, to, to act in a way or, or to, um, and the illustration you gave had to do with a will that God had that man got in the way of, accomplish, of God accomplishing. Gotcha. And, and okay. so I'm, I'm bringing in a distinction of two kinds of wills, okay? It is not God's will to abort a baby, but you can thwart that. But the True. purpose God had for that baby, that can't be thwarted. Now, it turns out God had no sovereign extended purpose for that baby, or else he, that no one could have opposed the will of God in that regard. Okay? Gotcha. So, um, so if God purposes to accomplish a certain end in someone's life or some series of events, that cannot be thwarted. God gotcha. had purposed Jesus to live a sinless life and to die a substitutionary death on our behalf. He had 33 years for that to be thwarted by the devil, and the devil tried lots of times. There were many times they tried to kill Jesus before his time, and he was able to, all the way back to the birth narratives, when Herod was trying to kill him, okay? Yep. That purpose would not be thwarted, and God protected Jesus all the way until the time that it was consistent with God's purposes for Judas to betray Christ and for the Jews to execute him on a cross. That was all part of the will of God. In fact, this is what the Scriptures say regarding the cross. In the Sermon on um, uh, 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 Pentecost, there you have... There you have Peter talking about Christ was delivered up according to the predetermined plan of God. Right. You know, but you put him to death. So the Jews were responsible for the immoral thing that they did, even though God used it. But God rescued and protected Jesus many times during his life, early on, and then later on in his ministry when the Jews were seeking to kill him. You know, we see that phrase pop up a number of times in the Gospels, yet they weren't successful until God's time. So, can a man thwart God? If what you mean is God's, God's ultimate purposes, the answer is no. If God purposes something to take place and exercises his power to accomplish it, it cannot be thwarted, because that would mean that human beings' power was greater than God's power. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. The reason being is because I'm, I'm familiar with the Institute for Life and all the stuff that you guys have um, done. You know, you spawned Scott Klusendorf in his ministry. But I've heard that argument before from an abortion standpoint. They said, well, you know, we would have a cure for cancer and AIDS and everything else if we hadn't aborted them. I'm like, well, that's, I can see where it's very compelling, that logic, but there was always something about it that bothers me. Well, see, this is where we have to... We have to qualify our language in in particular ways because there are all kinds of possibilities that might have been the case had certain events not interfered. So I don't know if cancer would have been cured, but um, it's clear that a lot of 
human beings, 60 million in the United States alone since Roe versus Wade. More than that, 60 million. We can't one imagine that great acts of benevolence and 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 uh, progress would have been the result. But of course, there's the other side as well. Who knows how many mass murderers might have been in there? That's not our business, though. Uh, our, right. It's not our business to try to figure that out, but we can lament the loss. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to God's purposes, we just those are all possibilities. Oh, if I would have done this, then this would have happened. Well, it didn't happen. And God, we aren't thwarting a purpose of God there. We may be disobeying God in certain ways, and that's against his will, but his purposes are ultimately going to go forward. So I am not offended or troubled by that remark. Look at all of the possibilities that are are that we've missed because all those people were killed. I think that's a completely understandable remark. But all of these possibilities that never got actuated because of the abortion were not part of God's plan that got thwarted. Gotcha. Perfect. Make sense? Perfect. Yep. Well, you make things crystal clear. Everything that was muddy is now crystal clear. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear it. It's good to talk to you again, Rob. I'm glad you remembered our meeting in uh, Mount Airy. Oh, before you go, because you don't do this enough, so your callers and your supporters have to. People support STR.org. It's one of the best organizations out there for apologetics. I'm a supporter, and you guys need more, because phenomenal ministry been with you oh. guys for many many years well that's great well that's i'm going to say goodbye to you but that's a great segue into my next announcement about be one of the 100 so there you go hey buddy thanks so God much bless you. yeah thank, thank you, you. bye bye so there you got it from the horse's mouth so to speak you've got uh the testimony from the field and of course this happens all the time and we're thrilled when it happens when other uh, strategic partners, people that are regular donors, give on a regular basis, on a committed basis, uh, whether they mail it in or whether they do it through, uh, you know, a bank draft or whatever it is, um, those are the the foundation, the backbone of our organization. And this month, uh, it's Be One of the 100 month. We're looking for 100 new committed donors to stand to reason. $25 or more qualifies you for this month, be one of the 100s at $25 or more per month commitment, and we will gift you, say thanks, by giving you access to the recordings for the 2021-22 reality, which was uh, titled From Chaos to Clarity. It was a fabulous event, and we're going to send you a link to that, all the material for that event. We're going to let you have a T-shirt from that event, too, with the Chaos to Clarity on it. And, of course, you get the regular 5% off, or maybe it's 10% off. Yeah, it's 10% off uh, on our at our store, Sandra store. You can be part of this special group that we have for strategic partners on Facebook. and uh, But mostly, you're going to be a really organic member of our team, just like um, our last caller was, was saying. And uh, it's just... Uh, it, they, it warms the cockles of my heart when anybody ever comes up to me at an event and says, hey, we are strategic partners. And I say, that's fabulous. Thanks so much. So be one of the 100. We've got, we're halfway there. We've got a little more than 50. Half of the month is done. Be one of our 100 this month to become a new strategic partner. You can do that by going to our website and specifically to donate.str.org slash partner. Okay. 
donate.str.org slash partner. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more on Stand to Reason. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Will you be one of the 100? We are seeking 100 new strategic partners by August 31st. Strategic partners are friends who pledge to support STR with an automatic monthly gift. And this month only, when you sign up with a monthly automatic gift of $25 or more, we'll send you the video download of the last reality conference, as well as a reality t-shirt. Your faithful support equips believers around the world through free resources like our podcasts and training videos, articles, STR University, and so much more. Plus, you'll get some benefits too, like access to a private Facebook group and a 10% discount in the store. So be one of the 100 today. Become a strategic partner by visiting str.org partner. We're going to go to some open mic callers here for a bit, and uh, just a uh, just a reminder: we do take live calls, <laughs> like the last one. Now we do the open mic because there's a convenience for you and for us. But our number is eight five five two four three nine nine seven five. You can characteristically call between four and six LA time. All right, and when you do, um, you'll get Amy, and you'll probably get me afterwards. Uh, but uh, the next couple weeks, as it turns out, um, we have scheduled shows because I'm going to be, well, no, wait, in, next week I'll be live, right? I will be live next week. The following week I won't be, So, but I'll just be live from Wisconsin. Okay, so we've kind of got some details worked out there. But uh, if you want to do open mic uh, call in, of course, just go to our website, our broadcast page, and the details are there, or you could uh, simply call in 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR. That's 857-342-5787. All right? I'm seeing a feed here at the bottom of the screen. Is this something I'm supposed to pay attention to? The speak pipe screen. No, don't worry about that. Okay. So I want to talk, uh, I want to um, take this this call from Angela. Do we have that there? Okay, Angela, and uh, it has to do with uh, science and morality. Hi, Greg. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Um, in a recent conversation with an atheist, I asked him what his basis for morality was, to which he responded, the scientific method. Um, I didn't quite see how the scientific method could provide obligation, Um 
I thought it was just more observation. So I asked him what the obligation was, um, to which he said empathy. Um, and after listening to your STRU class um, on, on, on morality and the part on obligation, I don't really see how empathy, though while important, does not provide um, an obligation for morality. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on either one of those, uh, either that the scientific method um, is the basis for morality or the empathy provides um, the obligation to that. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Angela. And a very thoughtful question. Um, And I love questions like this because this question um, is tied to uh, an argument for God that I love is very powerful. And um, there's some aspects of it that are a little bit hard to get sometimes because you have this crossfire like this, but it's the moral argument for God. And the argument is very simple, and that is if if there is no God, there's no objective morality. But there is objective morality, and by the way, I secure the truth of that premise by the problem of evil. That is the complaint. There is objective morality in the world. Okay, so the second premise is, and if there, but if there is objective morality, there is no God, there's no way to ground it. God's the only grounding for that. Okay, therefore, God exists. Okay, that's the argument in in its simple terms, as it were, and the rejoinders are things like this. The scientific method provides a basis for morality. Now, I just want you to think about the words, a basis for morality. All right, now let's follow an illustration here. Um, if, if there are speed limits on the roads and highways in your community— what is the basis for the speed limits? Oh, well, there are people in our community who just make signs and put a number on it and stick it up. Well, that's how you can get a number on a sign. Is that a, and a, does that create a morally or a legally obligatory obligation? That's a redundancy, I guess. A legal obligation. Is it obligatory? Uh, no, obviously. Because the citizens, individual people, making their signs and putting in a number on it is not an adequate basis for legitimate speed limits. What is the adequate basis? It's the local government. That makes sense. I'm not talking like objective morality. I'm just talking about the notion of basis, all right? So if, thinking in larger terms now, we're looking at the whole moral project— what is the basis for that? The argument I offered was that God is the only basis. God is an authority like a government who gives directives and commands to which we are obliged. We have an obligation to obey. Well, that all makes sense. It, it, it may not be true, I mean, for the sake of discussion at the moment, but it, do you see that there, that all fits together? This makes sense. This isn't just some guy putting up a sign with a number on it. It's the God who is the authority over everything who, who tells us the way things are supposed to be. Well, that makes sense. All right. That's the basis from my perspective. And somebody says, not so fast. The scientific method can provide a basis. How does the scientific method provide a basis? So Angela's observation was spot on. Scientific method entails 
observation. It doesn't entail obligation. That's an important distinction. The scientific method is, in a certain sense, a mechanical method. It's a way to accomplish something and learn something. So that's like saying, um, I'm just trying to think about, okay, um, if I want to make a fried egg, I get a frying pan, get some butter and an egg, crack it in under flame, and then when it's almost done, I flip it over. Actually, that would be not sunny side up, but over easy. That's the way to get an over-easy fried egg. That's a mechanistic process to get and accomplish it. Now, what have I said? Well, making a fried egg is a basis for morality. And you're going to look at me and say, huh? How does a mechanistic process that produces some result be the basis for morality? Well, it's not. Because that kind of thing can't form the basis for it. All right? So there's tremendous confusion there. Scientific method dictates no moral obligation of any kind. Nothing about the scientific method can give us that. So then, when questioned, the atheist says, well, empathy. Okay, how does this relate? I guess he's thinking that empathy is a basic moral principle that then can guide our behaviors, and we use something like a scientific method, a methodology, that helps us to know what, how to express empathy or how to accomplish empathy in the lives of other people. I, I guess... I, I'm trying to give this the most charitable read possible because I think it's a very confused thing to say, which is why Angela, as you could tell it in her voice, was a bit confused by his responses. Okay? If a person says that the foundation for morality is empathy, what they have done is smuggled in morality to form the foundation. and then are prepared to give examples of empathy in action. But you can't explain the foundation or the basis, what makes something moral, by just simply asserting something moral. Why is empathy moral? Now, I would say, I mean, I could say, because God says we ought to be empathetic. Well, now you have an authority giving a command that we're obliged to follow. That makes, that at least is a coherent way of understanding the moral foundation or grounding, and empathy is resting upon that grounding. It is not the grounding itself. Empathy is an example of the kind of thing that God may want us to do, it's a good thing, and when we do that good thing in a variety of different ways, then we are obeying and we are living virtuously and accomplishing good. But do you see, when somebody says empathy here, they are presuming that empathy is a good to begin with, and that we ought to live it out. No, I don't disagree with them that empathy is a good, but it is not the basis. 
the basis that's like saying the the, the what is the basis for speed limits? These signs made by people sticking them up on the highway and spray painting a number on it. Well, that's the sign, but it isn't the basis. The basis is the person who, as it turns out, has no authority to expect compliance in that situation. Therefore, it has no incumbency. It has no obligation to it, to obey it. Same thing here. You can say empathy. Empathy maybe is the guide, all right? Maybe empathy is one of the moral guidelines, but it is a moral guideline, and what we're asking is what is the basis of any moral guideline? Not give me an example of a moral guideline and find clever ways using some kind of methodology that you might call the scientific method to figure out how to apply empathy in different circumstances. Now, I think this is, like I said, sometimes hard to follow. And the reason it's hard to follow is because moral truths are obvious, but moral truths are not the grounds for themselves. And if people seize upon a moral truth, like empathy a moral good, I should say, they think they've done their job. There it is, empathy. Sam Harris, the the atheist, the, one of the so-called new atheists, not new anymore, 20 years old, does the same thing. Well, obviously, human flourishing is the basis of, as everybody agrees that human flourishing is a moral thing, so we can determine how to flourish better by using a scientific approach. So he employs a methodology that he's going to call a scientific methodology, to help us flourish more, because flourishing is good. But he doesn't say why flourishing is good. That is, what is the basis for it? We know it's good. That's not the question. It's not how we know it. We can know the speed limit by looking at the sign. The question is, who put the sign up there? My neighbor with a spray can and a piece of metal? Then I don't have to obey it. The government? That's different. They have the proper authority to do that, and they can enforce, and they do. Okay, so we're asking, what's the basis for human? Fl- what is what is underlies the claim that human flourishing is the way that we can? Uh, is the is the foundation that we work from to establish our morality without God? Incidentally, there's something else going on here. Not only is in the case of Angela's circumstance, the atheist smuggling in empathy as a moral good, which moral good itself needs to be explained. That's the very kind of thing that needs to be explained. But Sam Harris is doing the same thing when he smuggles in morality called human flourishing. Well, obviously, human flourishing is a foundation for morality. It is a foundation for morality. I agree. But it isn't the basis. It, I, sh- I should say it is a foundational moral good, is the best, better way to put it. But it isn't the foundation on which the moral good rests on. Says who? Why human flourishing and not like uh, porcupine flourishing? Why not that? What, what makes humans so special? That we have an obligation to help them flourish. And by the way, what the heck does that flourishing thing look like to begin with. So we have an uh, we have an issue here. 
the idea of human flourishing presumes that human beings are made for certain ends, and they flourish more as they more closely approximate those ends for which they were made. So what is automobile flourishing? Well, it means, you know, all the pistons firing in a certain way, smoothly together, all these parts moving so that when you get in and, and you push your foot on the pedal and you grab the steering wheel, you drive somewhere. Those are scientific elements, if you will, physicalistic. What if, you know, if only six or four or two pistons are firing? Well, you're not going to get where you want to go very well. Okay. Um, but that's the teleology. That's the goal of the vehicle. Human flourishing is the goal for humans. But what does human flourishing look like in detail? Um, the Third Reich had an understanding of what human flourishing looked like, or at least what the Volk flourishing looked like. The German people, okay? Um, the Hitler was looking to expand, have living space, okay? Uh, and um, uh, uh, that meant they occupied space other human beings were in, and they got rid of them. Because the Volk, the German people, could flourish better with all that extra land. That's what they wanted. All right? So there is an understanding of flourishing that is teleological, but is very different from other people's understanding of flourishing. So who says what version of flourishing is the good version of flourishing? If you have no underlying basis or foundation for the so-called good of flourishing, you don't know what that is. Now, sometimes we can grasp certain things that seem to be fairly obvious, but the notion of flourishing is tied to an intention for humanity, what humanity should look like. And I guarantee you that an atheist's idea of flourishing, especially in sexual matters, characteristically, is going to be very different than a Christian theist's understanding of flourishing. All right? So at very best, what, this, this, what, what you have here is an acknowledgment of objective morality, that is, say, empathy in this particular case, or in the case of Harris, um, human flourishing. You have an, a, an acknowledgment. That's great. <clears throat> but now the question is, what's the actual basis? It can't be a method like scientific method any more than it can be frying in an over-easy egg. Now I'm getting hungry when I think about it. No mechanistic process can be the basis for morality. Morality, at its core, <clears throat> entails obligation. That is, we have we are obliged to to do certain things for their own sake. There's an incumbency. That's the obligation. Now the question is, to whom are we obliged? And by the way, the whom is really important. Not to what are we obliged? We are not obliged to things. I have a pen here. I am not obliged to this pen. 
I may be obliged to my brother who made this pen. In fact, he did. Turned it beautifully on his pen-making little machine. Made about a thousand of these things and then went on to something else. I may be obliged to the person who made the pen to treat it with the respect appropriate for a gift from a brother, but I am not obliged to the pen. And by the way, all it takes is a little reflection to realize that morality is the kind of thing that entails obligation. We are obliged. If not, what do we mean when we say something is right to do? Don't we mean that it, we ought to do that? Or something that is wrong that we ought not to do that? That's what it means. But if we ought to do it, then to whom are we obliged to obey? It's kind of like gratitude, you know. I'm going to give thanks. Oh, who are you going to thank? Nobody. I'm just going to thank. Well, thanks is, is a way of, of showing gratitude to someone for doing something for you, either another person or to God for the, something he's given. And Thanksgiving is time we say thank you to each other, but especially to God. Thanks by nature is between persons. It's with regarding persons. It's not just an open-ended gratefulness. It, that's nothing. And in the same way, by parallel, morality entails obligation. But it's an obligation. Obligations are only held between persons. So then the question becomes, okay, what person is the appropriate basis for making an obligation that we ought to obey in the world? Writ large. I use the illustration of of um, speed limits because that's something you know writ smaller that we can understand how these things work together. But when we're talking about universal obligations, we talk about the problem of evil. People have done something they shouldn't have done. That ain't right. They did wrong. Okay. Who on the basis of whose? moral dictates did they do wrong and not right? Your grandma's? Says who? I mean, this is what the relativist is always saying to us. Says who? Well, that's what you're left with if relativism is the case. Says who? Says who? Empathy is the, is the basis or an important moral good that we ought to pursue. Says who that human flourishing is a moral good? Says who, what does that flourishing look like in practical application? Do you see, this is like the title of Frank Beckwith and my book on relativism so many years ago, 25 years ago now. Feet firmly planted in midair. That's what we have here. We have all of these assertions that trade on moral intuitions, the notion of human flourishing being a good, the notion of empathy being a good, I get that. I'm not taking exception with that. If it is a good, though, it must have a legitimate basis. So what's the basis? It ain't the scientific method. There's got to be some other external, objective, transcendent basis for either empathy or, or 
human flourishing to have an external objective uh, transcendent goodness. Who is the lawmaker responsible for those laws, those rules? It's, it's, I've, I've really addressed the same issue from about five different angles here. I think it's a real important one. This is one way, I, reason I've done that. And I also think this is a little bit of a challenging concept to really get your, you know, your, your hands around, so to speak. It's challenging, okay? So different illustrations, whatever. But I think it just comes down to a basic thing. Objective morality, and that's the only morality that really matters here, especially with regards to the problem of evil, has to have an adequate foundation, an adequate justification for the obligation, and those obligations are held between persons, and we're talking about transcendent obligations. It's got to be a transcendent person. And none of the other options work to accomplish that end. None of them. Not scientific method, not Darwinism, not moral Platonism. None of them work. This is the only one that works. And the only alternative you have is to deny that there is a problem of evil. You want to bite that bullet, you're welcome to it. But them's the options. All right, friends, that's it for this show. Thank you for being part of it. I'm Greg Kokel. For Stand a Reason, give them heaven. Bye-bye now.